Hello to everyone. We're thankful for another opportunity God's blessed us with to study the Word of God. We're thankful for His mindfulness of us and His provision for our soul that we could be saved. So last time we left off looking at the prophet and the widow of Zarephath and her son had died and the man of God had took him from her. Now she was repentant. She said, have you come to call my sin to remembrance? Have you come to bring this judgment, this trial upon me? Is this the reason that you come? Certainly that's not the case. Yet God is continually wrongfully accused and charged with uh, great evil. Uh, but she's repentant of her sins, realizing that she's a failure, just as we are. And yet, though she's obedient and following God's commandment and word, this great affliction has fallen upon her that her son has died. So she does all that she can do. She lays her son down into the arms of Elijah and trusts him with her son and the life of her son. And the man of God takes him apart, sets him in his own room. So um, we'll pick up there. And so she says this. He takes him up to his own bed. So he takes him to his own place. And in verse number 20, 1 Kings 17, verse 20, And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? Now remember this now, the trouble, the death, the afflictions, those are a result of sin. Had sin never entered in the garden, and that's a big hypothetical because with man, sin's always going to enter. That is man's natural desire. That's his natural state. Yet had sin not entered, there would have been no affliction, no trouble, no trial. So you can all root all of that back to the devil in the Garden of Eden and sin. And yet, though sin stepped in and though there's afflictions, God's still in control. And Elijah says, why have you brought this evil upon this woman who has provided for me? So in Acts 17 verse 25, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he, God, needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and if made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation. So God, now remember this, God is still in control of everything. God has set the bounds of man's life. God has determined when we're going to leave this world. And as he says in verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. It's in the Lord that there's life, and God has already set the bounds of our habitation. A lot of silliness in the thinking and in the reasoning of man today. And you know, I, I believe 
recent events have proved that, that man is now so fearful of getting sick, of catching a virus, because it might kill us. Even though the numbers prove that's not true, um, very few died from it. And yet they're more fearful of that, even, even churches. They're more fearful of the sickness, and it's showing a lack of trust that God is in control of everything. Friends, God's already set the bounds of our habitation. That's what the Bible says. And hath determined the times before appointed. He's already marked it out before. He's already appointed it before and the bounds of their habitation. We're not going past God's bounds. You can guarantee it. God's still in control. I don't care what happens. God's in control. I don't care what comes upon the world. God is still in control. God's never lost control. It's not out of His power. What ought we to do? Well, we ought to trust Him. We ought to trust God with all things. And know this, when time to die comes, we can be in the best hospital, in the most sterile room, with the best doctors around, yet when death comes... They're not going to prevent it. And man thinks, well, we won't have church and that'll keep us from dying. Foolishness. Foolishness. We ought to trust God knowing that He is in control. Uh, so, hast thou brought evil? Life and death, good and evil, God's in control of it all. He is. Now, man don't like that. Man does not want to admit that God is in control. And friends, that's why man is continually in fear and afraid and worrying and doubting. It's because they do not truly believe that God is in control. Either God's in control or it's up to chance. That's the only two options that there is. So which is it? If God's in control then could I not trust Him, follow Him, worship Him through it all, knowing that we rest in the hand of God? Elijah recognizes that this has come because God has allowed it to come. Now, Elijah's affected by this. It has affected Elijah that this boy has died. No doubt, in the time that he spent there, they've become friends, more or less family. They care for each other. They love each other. Elijah loves this widow, and Elijah loves this boy. And he's praying to God, and his heart is broken that this has come upon this family. Now, you know, Elijah loved them by the time he spent with them. Well, do you not reckon that God loves us as well? Surely he does. He either does or he doesn't. So, which is it? Certainly God loves. The devil wants to lie you every way he can. And he wants to rob you in any way that he can. Elijah was affected. We know Christ was affected for us because we've seen it publicly 
not done in a corner, as Paul said, but it was done openly. He was crucified, suffering the suffering of death for our salvation. Now, if he suffered that for us when we were lost, as we covered a while back in Sunday school, does he not care for us now that we're saved and adopted and in his family? Certainly he does. Just remember this. Through, through all of this, we're in the hand of God. You can either trust him or you can't. That sounds so elementary, but goodness gracious, it's the truth. It's the truth. So, Elijah prays to God and he stretched himself upon the child three times. So I believe the picture is he's putting his body on the body of the son. In a, a picture there, I, I believe, a picture of him giving life, his life, into the son. That the, the life that's in Elijah might be passed forth to the son. Well, you know, the, the Lord Jesus, he done more than just stretch himself upon us. He, as he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. So the Lord Jesus didn't just stretch himself on us. He became us. He became a man. He came born in a flesh and in a body and in a life that was just like ours. He came to be one of us that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. He came that we could have life. And we received life by his life passing from him unto us. We're alive because he died and resurrected for us. So that we share, not that we had any life within us, because we were dead in trespasses and sins, and Christ's life was given to us. We live because he lives. So Jesus took on him, he says in verse 16, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So the Lord Jesus became, like you and I are, in a body, not just to associate with us. You know, Elijah, he couldn't die for the boy here, but he stretched himself on him, associating him with his condition, with the state that he was in, and passing his life force unto the boy that the boy might live. Well, the Lord Jesus didn't just associate. He came down and took on a body like our dead body, and he lived victorious, and then he gave his life on the cross. He died in our place. Elijah couldn't do that. He couldn't die for the boy and the boy live. But in a figure and in a picture and a parable, if you'll have it, we have that happening here.
Here, Elijah's passing his life to the boy in a picture, and the Lord Jesus, in reality, he gave his life that we could have life. He died that his life force could be given unto us. And not just die, he resurrected victorious, and that in him we live. So he stretched himself upon the child three times, and I believe that three, you know, you, you could argue, but a picture there as well of our Lord Jesus Christ in the grave, in the belly of the earth, for three days, that we could have life. And that's the only reason, folks, the only reason that the Lord Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days was so that you and I could be resurrected and have life. That we could be saved from the suffering of death, from the shame of sin, from the weight of guilt, and from the wrath of God. The Lord Jesus was in the belly of the earth three days that we could live. And here, Elijah is stretched forth on the widow woman's son three times in the effort that the boy might be made alive. <clears throat> and so, listen to these words here. This is back in 1 Kings 17, verse 22. Very wise words here, maybe that could be easily read over. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. So, I'm sorry, back, back up to 21. He stretches himself three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. So Elijah then had an understanding that man had a soul. There was an understanding here that the life was not the body or the beating of the heart or the working of the brain. All of those things are present when life is present. But the life of man is provided by the soul. There was two parts to this boy. The natural man was laying there in the bed, dead. The soul was with God. As the Lord says, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. Well, that's not the natural body that's present with the Lord. It's the soul. And Elijah says, God, would you send this boy's soul back to him that he might live. Let his soul come in to him again. So that's not, that's not an amazing thing that Elijah had knowledge of a soul, of a spiritual man. Because Moses had knowledge of that as well. Because when Moses wrote Genesis, he wrote that man became a living soul. The soul of man, given by the breath of God, is what produces life. And when God calls the soul, though we may artificially keep the heart beating and the lungs breathing, when the soul is gone, there's no life in the body. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, Solomon had this knowledge, and this was also written before Elijah was on the scene. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8, There is no man that hath power over the spirit to retain the spirit, neither hath he power in the day of death. 
And there is no discharge in that war. Neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. So there's an understanding that when the Spirit is called, we don't have any power to retain the Spirit. There is no cheating death, as man likes to say at times today. There is no escaping it. There is no great will of man that's able to will life in him. And there's no discharge. Nobody's going to get out of this either. But when God calls for the soul, the soul departs from the body, life is gone, gone forever. And in Ecclesiastes 12 verse 7, Then shall dust return to the earth as it was. The body's going back. And the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. That belongs to God. And so Elijah, Elijah prays, Lord, let the soul of this boy return unto him. The soul doesn't die. You see that? Elijah recognized that the soul of this boy, though his body is dead, the soul's not dead. The soul is eternal, everlasting. It's a part of God, a product of the breath of God. Therefore, in every one of us, there's two. There's a natural man that's going back to the dust, but there's a spirit, there's a soul from God that will never die. Whether that soul abide in heaven with the Lord for eternity, or the soul abide in God's wrath in the flames and furnace of fire of hell, yet the soul cannot die. It's eternal. Elijah recognized that. Let the soul come back to this boy. And so in verse 22, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. Now what about that? It wasn't that the heart needed to start beating again. It was that his soul needed to return. There is the life of man. And you know, we looked last time in Acts, in him we live, move, and have our being. The life is in the soul. I would that man could realize the natural man, the spiritual man, the difference betwixt the two, and that God's in control every bit of it. If we could realize that and trust that, there's strength there. So in verse 23, and Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber. Now, the boy has revived. God has done a work. He was dead, and he's been revived. And it's worth saying, this is the first resurrection that we find in the Bible. This had never happened before. So now Elijah is praying to God for this dead child to be revived, and that's never happened before. It's not been heard of that somebody that's dead, that life would come back. Talk about great faith. Well, Elijah's going to do the first resurrection that's ever seen in the Bible. The Lord Jesus is going to be the first that's going to resurrect himself 
from the dead, never to die again. And that's the difference. The Lord was the first fruits from the dead, and somebody says, well, Elijah resurrected this boy, the Lord resurrected Lazarus, and, and many other resurrections we see in the Old and New Testament, and say, well, there's been others that's been resurrected. But the, there's a difference now. The boy here, he's going to die again. He's not alive today. He's dead. Lazarus, he's not alive today. He's dead. The Lord Jesus resurrected forever to never die again. He is the first fruits from the dead. He defeated death, never to die again. So, Elijah took the child, brought him down out of the chamber into the house, and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. Now think about, here's the widow woman, distraught over the death of her son, the man of God's took him upstairs, and I don't know what she's expecting. But the man of God has prayed, God's answered, the son's alive. And Elijah carries him down, puts him in her, in her arms and says, look, he's alive. He's just fine. All of that was for naught. The boy is fine. Now you think about what kind of reaction she must have had to see the work of God. And this is what she says. The woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. So she's going to be convinced of something here that she was never convinced of before. So this affliction then is going to convince her that God and the prophet are true and in power, and after this she would never doubt that again. I know that thou art a man of God, and the word of the Lord is in thy mouth. So John chapter 11, we see Lazarus that was sick and that died. And now the natural question is, of the disciples, of the sisters, Lord, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. But he let him die on purpose. The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of Man might be glorified thereby. That's John 11, verse 4, on over in verse 14. Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes I was not there, to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Again, in verse 41, They took away the stone where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. So this entire situation, God allowed the entire situation from Lazarus' sickness and his death to the Lord Jesus coming after he's been dead four days and God resurrecting him. That was done to prove to those people that Jesus was in fact the Son of God. And not just those people, but it's recorded there that you and I can read it 
see God's ability and recognize Jesus is the Son of God and He's trustworthy for all things. So that though right now we may look and say, Why, God, have you allowed this to happen? Why have you allowed the devil to have his way? Why have you allowed this to come upon me, upon my family, upon my friends? Though the devil would like to waller you to death with worry and anxiety, recognize that all things happen to the glory of the name of the Son of God. This was allowed so that the Lord might be exalted in it all. Where we covered just a few days ago in Romans 5, tribulation worketh patience. I tell you what was happening. The, the widow woman through this tribulation was going to learn cheerful endurance that God is God and that He's in control and that He can be trusted through it all. In Isaiah 48, I believe here we can see a wonderful picture of all that we've talked about regarding affliction. Isaiah 48, verse 9. For my name's sake will I defer mine anger. For my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? and I will not give my glory unto another. So the Lord says in Isaiah that He's refined them in the furnace of affliction. So just exactly like, and Peter and the apostles in the New Testament use this reference, exactly like gold and silver is refined in fire. It's made more pure by being tried in the fire. God's people are made more pure by the fire of affliction. And God's using affliction to purify His people. Now the widow woman, the widow woman believed God. She had been obedient unto God. But there may have been a question that could have arose. Well, God, through this affliction, has settled her heart in a place that she will not doubt whether God is God any longer. She's been convinced and so, though the question, why me, may never be answered to the satisfaction of the flesh. Remember this. God is working in His people to refine and for them to grow spiritually in their trust and in their assurance of His power. God does not punish his children. The punishment is for those that reject and neglect the word and the warning of God. He chastises his children. And you know that chastisement that we do for our children, that's to teach them. That's that they might learn a lesson. That they might learn what's important. Learn what's necessary. Learn what's good and learn what's bad. The Lord, through the furnace of affliction, is teaching, instructing, and leading His children that they might grow and become more pure, and that God's name might be glorified through us in our life here, that we would learn to trust Him. He says in Hebrews, speaking of this very thing, 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Chastisement is not just, you've done wrong, I'm going to punish. That's not the only way we teach our children. But we teach them, we chasten, we instruction, we train up children in every way. Trying to teach and instruct and learn them about life, about good, about evil. And that's what the Lord's doing. And through affliction, we learn things that we would never learn in times of good and of great blessing. So he continues on here. In verse 11, this is Hebrews 12, verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. So it doesn't seem like a joyous occasion. That word seemeth, it means opinion or to think. So when, when we're actively being chastened, being trained by the Lord in the furnace of affliction, it's not joyous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Though it's not joyous and pleasant, you're guaranteed if you belong to the Lord, He's going to make a better person out of us. That's what the Lord's working to do, working to draw us closer to Him and make better Christians out of his people. That's a good stopping point right there. We'll pick up in chapter 18 and business is about to pick up. Elijah's going to go back to Ahab. Rain's going to come and the famine's going to end in chapter 18. I hope the word's been a help to you. Do pray for us and uh, keep us in your prayers that the Lord would use us that we could help people. Certainly we all Need instruction from the Lord, and the Word of God can be our strength. I hope you have a wonderful week. I'm thankful for each one of you that listen. We love you.